Phase the Fourth, The Consequence Part Two From Tessa the D'Urbervilles by Thomas Hardy This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Seven an uphill and downhill ride of twenty-odd miles through a garish midday atmosphere brought him in the afternoon to a detached knoll a mile or two west of Talbothays, whence he again looked into that green trough of sappiness and humidity, the valley of the Var or Froom. Immediately he began to descend from the upland to the fat alluvial soil below, the atmosphere grew heavier. The languid perfume of the summer fruits, the mists, the hay, the flowers formed therein a vast pool of odour which at this hour seemed to make the animals the very bees and butterflies drowsy clare was now so familiar with the spot that he knew the individual cows by their names when a long distance off he saw them dotted about the meads it was with a sense of luxury that he recognised his power of viewing life here from its inner side in a way that had been quite foreign to him in his student days and much as he loved his parents he could not help being aware that to come here as now after an experience of home life affected him like throwing off splints and bandages even the one customary curb on the humours of english rural societies being absent in this place talbot hayes having no resident landlord not a human being was out of doors at the dairy the denizens were all enjoying the usual afternoon nap of an hour or so which the exceedingly early hours kept in summer-time rendered a necessity at the door the wood-hooped pails sodden and bleached by infinite scrubbings hung like hats on a stand upon the forked and peeled limb of an oak fixed there for that purpose all of them ready and dry for the evening milking angel entered and went through the silent passages of the house to the back quarters where he listened for a moment sustained snores came from the cart-house where some of the men were lying down the grunt and squeal of sweltering pigs arose from a still further distance the large-leaved rhubarb and cabbage plants slept too their broad limp surfaces hanging in the sun like half-closed umbrellas he unbridled and fed his horse and as he re-entered the house the clock struck three three was the afternoon skimming hour and with the stroke and then the touch of a descending foot on the stairs it was tessa's who in another moment came down before his eyes she had not heard him enter and hardly realized his presence there she was yawning and he saw the red interior of her mouth as if it had been a snake's she had stretched one arm so high above her coiled-up cable of hair that he could see its satin delicacy above the sunburn her face was flushed with sleep and her eyelids hung heavy over their pupils the brim fullness of her nature breathed from her it was a moment when a woman's soul is more incarnate than at any other time when the most spiritual beauty bespeaks itself flesh and sex takes the outside place in the presentation then those eyes flashed brightly through their filmy heaviness before the remainder of her face was well awake with an oddly compounded look of gladness shyness and surprise she exclaimed oh mr clare how you frightened me i there had not at first been time for her to think of the changed relations which his declaration had introduced 
but the full sense of the matter rose up in her face when she encountered Clare's tender look as he stepped forward to the bottom stair. "'Dear, darling Tessie,' he whispered, putting his arm round her and his face to her flushed cheek. "'Don't, for heaven's sake, mister me any more. I have hastened back so soon because of you.' Tessa's excitable heart beat against his by way of reply, and there they stood upon the red brick floor of the entry, the sun slanting in by the window upon his back as he held her tightly to his breast. Upon her inclining face, upon the blue veins of her temple, upon her naked arm and her neck, and into the depths of her hair. Having been lying down in her clothes, she was warm as a sunned cat. At first she would not look straight up at him, but her eyes soon lifted, and his plumbed the deepness of the ever-varying pupils, with their radiating fibrils of blue and black and grey and violet, while she regarded him as Eve, at her second waking, might have regarded Adam. "'I've got to go a-skimming,' she pleaded, "'and I have only old Deb to help me to-day. Mrs. Crick is gone to market with Mr. Crick, and Reddy is not well, and the others have gone out somewhere, and won't be home till milking.' As they retreated to the milk-house, Deborah Fiander appeared on the stairs. "'I have come back, Deborah,' said Mr. Clare, upwards. "'So I can help Tess with the skimming, and, as you are very tired, I am sure, you needn't come down till milking-time.' Possibly the Talbot Hayes milk was not very thoroughly skimmed that afternoon. Tess was in a dream wherein familiar objects appeared as having light and shade and position but no particular outline. Every time she held the skimmer under the pump to cool it for the work, her hand trembled, the ardour of his affection being so palpable that she seemed to flinch under it like a plant in too burning a sun. Then he pressed her again to his side, and when she had done running her forefinger round the leads to cut off the cream edge, he cleaned it in nature's way, for the unconstrained manners of Talbot Hayes' dairy came convenient now. "'I may as well say it now as later, dearest,' he resumed gently. I, "'I wish to ask you something of a very practical nature, which I have been thinking of ever since that day last week in the Meads. I shall soon want to marry, and, and being a farmer, you see, I shall require for my wife a woman who knows all about the management of farms. Will you be that woman, Tessie?' He put it that way, that she might not think he had yielded to an impulse of which his head would disapprove. She turned quite careworn. She had bowed to the inevitable result of proximity, the necessity of loving him, but she had not calculated upon this sudden corollary, which, indeed, Clare had put before her, without quite meaning himself to do it so soon. With pain that was like the bitterness of dissolution, she murmured the words of her indispensable and sworn answer as an honourable woman. "'Oh, Mr. Clare, I cannot be your wife. I cannot be.' The sound of her own decision seemed to break Tessa's very heart, and she bowed her face in her grief. "'But, Tess,' he said, amazed at her reply and holding her still more greedily close, "'do you say no?' surely you love me oh yes yes and i would rather be yours than anybody's in the world 
returned the sweet and honest voice of the distressed girl. But I cannot marry you. Tess, he said, holding her at arm's length, you are engaged to marry someone else. No, no. Then why do you refuse me? I don't want to marry. I have not thought of doing it. I, I cannot. I only want to love you. But why? Driven to subterfuge, she stammered, Your father is a parson, and your mother wouldn't like you to marry such as me. So she will want you to marry a lady. Nonsense! I have spoken to them both. That was partly why I went home. I feel I cannot. Never, never, she echoed. Is it too sudden to be asked thus, my pretty? Yes, I did not expect it. If you will let it pass, please, Tessie, I will give you time, he said. It was very abrupt to come home and speak to you all at once. I'll not allude to it again for a while. She again took up the shining skimmer, held it beneath the pump, and began anew. But she could not, as at other times, hit the exact under-surface of the cream with the delicate dexterity required, try as she might. Sometimes she was cutting down into the milk, sometimes in the air. She could hardly see, her eyes having filled with two blurring tears drawn forth by a grief, which, to this, her best friend and dear advocate, she could never explain. "'I can't skim! I can't!' she said, turning away from him. Not to agitate and hinder her longer, the considerate Clare began talking in a more general way. "'You quite misapprehend my parents. They are the most simple-mannered people alive, and quite unambitious. They are two of the few remaining evangelical school. Tessie, are you an evangelical?' "'I don't know.' "'You go to church very regularly.' and our parson here is not very high, they tell me. Tessa's ideas on the views of the parish clergyman, whom she heard every week, seemed to be rather more vague than Clare's, who had never heard him at all. "'I wish I could fix my mind on what I hear there more firmly than I do,' she remarked as a safe generality. "'It is often a great sorrow to me.' She spoke so unaffectedly that Angel was sure in his heart that his father could not object to her on religious grounds, even though she did not know whether her principles were high, low, or broad. He himself knew that, in reality, the confused beliefs which she held, apparently imbibed in childhood, were, if anything, tractarian as to phraseology, and pantheistic as to essence. Confused or otherwise, to disturb them was his last desire. Leave thou thy sister when she prays, her early heaven, her happy views, nor thou with shadowed hint confuse a life that leads melodious days. He had occasionally thought the counsel less honest than musical, but he gladly conformed to it now. He spoke further of the incidents of his visits, of his father's mode of life, of his zeal for his principles. She grew serener, and the undulations disappeared from her skimming. As she finished one lead after another, he followed her, and drew the plugs for letting down the milk. "'I fancied you looked a little downcast when you came in,' she ventured to observe, anxious to keep away from the subject of herself. 
Yes. Well, my father had been talking a good deal to me of his troubles and difficulties, and the subject always tends to depress me. He is so zealous that he gets many snubs and buffetings from people of a different way of thinking from himself, and I don't like to hear of such humiliations to a man of his age, the more particularly as I don't think earnestness does any good when carried so far. He has been telling me of a very unpleasant scene in which he took part quite recently. He went as a deputy of some missionary society to preach in the neighborhood of Trentridge, a place forty miles from here, and made it his business to expostulate with a lax young cynic he met with somewhere about there, son of some landowner up that way, and who has a mother afflicted with blindness. My father addressed himself to the gentleman point-blank, and there was quite a disturbance. It was very foolish of my father, I must say, to intrude his conversation upon a stranger when the probabilities were so obvious that it would be useless. But whatever he thinks to be his duty, that he'll do, in season or out of season, and, of course, he makes many enemies, not only among the absolutely vicious, but among the easy-going, who hate being bothered. He says he glories in what happened, and that good may be done indirectly but I wish he would not wear himself out now he is getting old, and would leave such pigs to their wallowing. Tessa's look had grown hard and worn, and her ripe mouth tragical, but she no longer showed any tremulousness. Clare's revived thoughts of his father prevented his noticing her particularly, and so they went on down the white row of liquid rectangles till they had finished and drained them off, when the other maids returned and took their pails and Deb came to scald out the leads for the new milk. As Tess withdrew to go afield to the cows, he said to her softly, "'And my question, Tessie?' "'Oh, no, no,' replied she with grave hopelessness, as one who had heard anew the turmoil of her own past in the allusion to Alec d'Urberville. "'It can't be!' She went out towards the mead, joining the other milkmaids with a bound, as if trying to make the open air drive away her sad constraint. All the girls drew onward to the spot where the cows were grazing in the farther mead, the bevy advancing with the bold grace of wild animals, the reckless, unchastened motion of women accustomed to unlimited space, in which they abandoned themselves to the air as a swimmer to the wave. It seemed natural enough to him, now that Tess was again in sight, to choose a mate from unconstrained nature, and not from the abodes of art. CHAPTER Twenty Eight. Her refusal, though unexpected, did not permanently daunt Clare. His experience of women was great enough for him to be aware that the negative often meant nothing more than the preface to the affirmative and it was little enough for him not to know that in the manner of the present negative there lay a great exception to the dallyings of coyness. That she had already permitted him to make love to her he read as an additional assurance, not fully trowing that in the fields and pastures to sigh gratis is by no means deemed waste, love-making being here more often accepted inconsiderately and for its own sweet sake than in the carking anxious homes of the ambitious where a girl's craving for an establishment paralyzes her healthy thought of a passion as an end. "'Tess, why did you say no in such a positive way? 
he asked her in the course of a few days. She started. Don't ask me. I told you why. Partly. I... I am not good enough, not worthy enough. How? How? Not fine lady enough? Yes, something like that, murmured she. Your friends would scorn me. Indeed, you mistake them, my father and mother. As for my brothers, I don't care. He clasped his fingers behind her back to keep her from slipping away. Now, you did not mean it, sweet. I am sure you did not. You have made me so restless that I cannot read or play or do anything. I am in no hurry, Tess, but I want to know, to hear from your own warm lips, that you will some day be mine, any time you may choose, but some day. She could only shake her head and look away from him. Claire regarded her attentively conned the characters of her face as if they had been hieroglyphics. The denial seemed real. Then I ought not to hold you in this way, ought I? I have no right to you, no right to seek out where you are or walk with you. Honestly, Tess, do you love any other man? How can you ask? she said, with continued self-suppression. I almost know that you do not. But then, why do you repulse me? I don't repulse you. I like you to tell me you love me, and, and you may always tell me, so as you go about with me, and never offend me. But you will not accept me as a husband? Oh, that's different. It is for your good indeed, my dearest. Oh, believe me, it is only for your sake. I don't like to give myself the great happiness of promising to be yours in that way, because—because because I am sure I ought not to do it. But you will make me happy. Oh, you think so, but you don't know. At such times as this, apprehending the grounds of her refusal to be her modest sense of incompetence in matters social and polite, he would say that she was wonderfully well-informed and versatile, which was certainly true, her natural quickness and her admiration for him having led her to pick up his vocabulary, his accent, and fragments of his knowledge, to a surprising extent. After these tender contests and her victory, she would go away by herself under the remotest cow, if at milking-time, or into the sedge or into her room, if at a leisure interval, and mourn silently not a minute after an apparently phlegmatic negative. The struggle was so fearful, her own heart was so strongly on the side of his, two ardent hearts against one poor little conscience, that she tried to fortify her resolution by every means in her power. She had come to Talbot Hayes with a made-up mind. On no account could she agree to a step which might afterwards cause bitter ruing to her husband for his blindness in wedding her and she held that what her conscience had decided for her when her mind was unbiased ought not to be overruled now. "'Why don't somebody tell him about me?' she said. "'It was only forty miles off. Why hasn't it reached here? Somebody must know.' Yet nobody seemed to know. Nobody told him. For two or three days no more was said. 
she guessed from the sad countenances of her chamber companions that they regarded her not only as the favourite but as the chosen but they could see for themselves that she did not put herself in his way tess had never before known a time in which the thread of her life was so distinctly twisted of two strands positive pleasure and positive pain at the next cheese-making the pair were again left alone together the dairyman himself had been lending a hand but mr quick as well as his wife seemed latterly to have acquired a suspicion of mutual interest between these two though they walked so circumspectly that suspicion was but of the faintest anyhow the dairyman left them to themselves they were breaking up the masses of curd before putting them into the vats the operation resembled the act of crumbling bread on a large scale and amid the immaculate whiteness of the curds tess durbeyfield's hands showed themselves of the pinkness of the rose angel who was filling the vats with his handful suddenly ceased and laid his hands flat upon hers her sleeves were rolled far above the elbow and bending lower he kissed the inside vein of her soft arm although the early september weather was sultry her arm from her dabbling in the curds was as cold and damp to his mouth as a new-gathered mushroom and tasted of the whey but she was such a sheaf of susceptibilities that her pulse was accelerated by the touch her blood driven to her finger-ends and the cool arms flushed hot then as though her heart had said is coyness longer necessary truth is truth between man and woman as between man and man she lifted her eyes and they beamed devotedly into his as her lip rose in a tender half-smile do you know why i did that tess he said because you love me very much yes and as a preliminary to a new entreaty not again she looked a sudden fear that her resistance might break down under her own desire oh tessie he went on i cannot think why you are so tantalizing why do you disappoint me so you seem almost like a coquette upon my life you do a coquette of the first urban water they blow hot and blow cold just as you do and it is the very last sort of thing to expect to find in a retreat like talbot Hayes. and yet dearest he quickly added observing now the remark had caught her i know you to be the most honest spotless creature that ever lived so how can i suppose you a flirt tess why don't you like the idea of being my wife if you love me as you seem to do i have never said i don't like the idea and i never could say it because it isn't true the stress now getting beyond endurance her lip quivered and she was obliged to go away clare was so pained and perplexed that he ran after and caught her in the passage tell me tell me he said passionately clasping her in forgetfulness of his curdy hands do tell me that you won't belong to anybody but me i will i will tell you she exclaimed and i will give you a complete answer if you will let me go now i will tell you my experiences all about myself all your experiences dear yes certainly any number 
he expressed assent in loving satire, looking into her face. My Tess, no doubt, almost as many experiences as that wild convolvulus out there on the garden hedge that opened itself this morning for the first time. Tell me anything, but don't use that wretched expression any more about not being worthy of me. I will try not, and I'll give you my reasons to-morrow, next week. Say, on Sunday. Yes, on Sunday. At last she got away, and did not stop in her retreat, till she was in the thicket of pollard willows at the lower side of the barton, where she could be quite unseen. Here Tess flung herself down upon the rustling undergrowth of spear-grass as upon a bed, and remained crouching in palpitating misery, broken by momentary shouts of joy, which her fears about the ending could not altogether suppress. In reality she was drifting into acquiescence. Every seesaw of her breath, every wave of her blood, every pulse singing in her ears, was a voice that joined with nature in revolt against her scrupulousness. Reckless, inconsiderate acceptance of him, to close with him at the altar, revealing nothing and chancing discovery, to snatch ripe pleasure before the iron teeth of pain could have time to shut upon her. That was what love counselled, and in almost a terror of ecstasy, Tess divined that, despite her many months of lonely self-chastisement, wrestlings, communings, schemes to lead a future of austere isolation, love's counsel would prevail. The afternoon advanced, and still she remained among the willows. She heard the rattle of taking down the pails from the fork stands, the wow-wow which accompanied the getting together of the cows. But she did not go to the milking. They would see her agitation, and the dairyman, thinking the cause to be love alone, would good-naturedly tease her, and that harassment could not be borne. Her lover must have guessed her overwrought state, and invented some excuse for her non-appearance, for no inquiries were made or calls given. At half-past six the sun settled down upon the levels with the aspect of a great forge in the heavens, and presently a monstrous pumpkin-like moon arose on the other hand. The pollard willows, tortured out of their natural shape by incessant choppings, became spiny-haired monsters as they stood up against it. She went in and upstairs without a light. It was now Wednesday. Thursday came, and Angel looked thoughtfully at her from a distance, but intruded in no way upon her. The indoor milkmaids, Marian and the rest, seemed to guess that something definite was afoot, for they did not force any remarks upon her in the bedchamber. Friday passed. Saturday. Tomorrow was the day. I shall give way. I shall say yes. I shall let myself marry him. I cannot help it. She jealously panted, with her hot face to the pillow that night, on hearing one of the other girls sigh his name in her sleep. I can't bear to let anybody have him but me. Yet it is a wrong to him, and may kill him when he knows. Oh, my heart! Oh! Oh, oh. End of part two.